Disquiet on the Western Front, 08. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want to mow and mow and mow, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just, you know, right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. You must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. Listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Disquiet on the Western Front. This is Chad Swimmer speaking to you from the unceded territory of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki, also known as Casper, California. Old Casper, exactly. You may have been expecting to hear an interview coming up with Daryl Cherney, but we've postponed that until June for various reasons. We are going to hear from Ravel Gautier and Sarah Constance Rose, two youth climate activists who you've heard from before on these shows, and they attended the EarthX Climate Conference in Dallas, Texas, of all places. We are also going to hear from Michelle McMillan and Matthew Bostock about different directions that activism can take in the cyber world and the modern world. Part of my thought with the episode tonight is to highlight the fact that so much of our activism has to do 
with social media and with the internet, which is very, very carbon intensive, unfortunately, but also is crucial to getting our message out to the millions and billions of people out there that much of the activism that has to happen is media activism. And if you look at, say, old style activism, direct activism, which all of us have been a part of and which most of my shows have focused on, that one aspect was trying to get media attention. And we have to do it in a different way. If we look at Earth First and other groups, civil disobedience, one of the main objectives was to get arrested and get it in the papers. And we are not seeing that as being quite as powerful of a tactic. This is not to say this doesn't work, but so much of our message has been co-opted. And we saw that in January on Jackson State Forest Property 6, activists were subject to citizen's arrest and it didn't really get any attention at all beyond our local media. But really we have to think about this as a situation where forest activism is and continues to be crucial, but that the biggest issue right now is climate change. And I'd like to go to a little bit of the recent IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change, sixth assessment report, which basically points out that we have almost no time left. What this actually means is yet to be seen, but that the focus of this new report that was just released, and this is actually three reports and each one's about a thousand pages, and the focus, as they say, is on solutions. It highlights the importance of fundamental changes in society at the same time as conser conserving, restoring, and safeguarding nature in order to meet the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. It's now clear that minor, marginal, reactive, or in incremental changes will not be sufficient. It's pretty obvious, and they say it, that we are the cause, as most of us have known for a long time. And it's also obvious that we actually do have the, the resources to make a lot of changes. We can't stave off all of climate change and all of global warming. The problem is political and individual will. And of course, the corporations would like to put it on us to make the changes, us citizens. And we do have to make changes, but they have to make changes and they have to stop hammering us with this propaganda that says that we are the prime problem when it's a big picture and it's kind of a huge cooperative effort that we have to undertake. So if I take that to look at our efforts in Jackson State Forest, our local efforts here on the Mendocino Coast, this started uh, two years and two months ago, but on the shoulders of the original campaign to restore Jackson State Forest, which happened starting in the 90s and had a lot of success, but then had setbacks later on. And we're not going to get into that deeply today. But if we look at the evolution of this movement, that it started off looking at a very small picture. And we've been continuously criticized for being NIMBYs, like not in my backyard. The problem is, is that then if we go and work in somebody else's backyard, we're criticized as being outside agitators. So obviously there's the other side has a message for any situation. We have to have a message for any situation. And the message I see is, is that if you can't change the forest and the management in your backyard, then what can you change? And you've got to start right here. But we started small 
And as far as I can tell, besides the fact that there was a lot of pent-up emotion surrounding the pandemic and Trump, that there was also the situation that we successfully did a lot of internet outreach, also including op-eds in local and regional newspapers. And it seemed like one thing after another just built our following and it created a larger movement, which has been both incredibly powerful and difficult as all of us within the movement and within any movement know. But what we've come to is, is that some of us are focusing more on larger climate issues and how we do it is controversial. And what we're actually going to accomplish is yet to be seen. As I said earlier, we are going to hear today from a few different people about things that are going on. And one of course is our youth climate activists and the eye-opening experience they had going to a United Nations climate conference in Dallas, Texas. The other is looking at Overstand, which, which is a new organization and it is working to fund and increase awareness for the environmental movements by selling NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which are extremely controversial and the jury is definitely out, but in my perception, it's just another way of using the system against the system. And I think that's what we have to do at this point. So let's go to a little bit of music and then we're going to come back and hear about the Earth X Climate Conference. <laughs> That was Lali and Christelle with some deep house from South Africa, Bong Bing. We're going to start with youth climate activist Ravel Gautier. This was intended to be a four-way conversation with Ravel, Sarah, Michelle, and Matt. But unfortunately, we had some COVID issues. Nobody's sick, but some exposure. And so some of this was outside, thus you hear the wind. And some of this was done by Zoom. Unfortunately, we aren't all in the same room together as we had hoped. One of these days, Ravel, we're all really excited to hear that you and Sarah Rose got invited to this EarthX conference. What is EarthX? Yeah, EarthX is an organization that puts on conferences to do with climate change. It was founded by a pro-environment Republican, which is interesting, and I believe this is the 10th Congress of Conferences. You were uh, two of the youngest people there? Yeah, I was the youngest person there. The UN defines youth as under 35. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I was by far the youngest person there. Sarah was one of the youngest people there. I think there was one high school senior and the rest were undergraduate graduate, or graduate students and or adults who have graduated college. But what was the actual aim of the conference? So, yeah, the aim of the conference was to connect high-level climate activists who are working within the UN system and on-the-ground activists like us. We met somebody who leads School for Stri School Strike for Climate in Australia. Were there people from a number of different countries? Um, yeah, there were, there were certainly a diverse array of people uh, from different countries. I'd say quite a few of them were from the United States, but probably not the majority. How did you end up getting invited to this conference? 
Yeah, so after you organized the school strike for climate in Sacramento, uh, we got an email saying we were invited to EarthX 2022. At first, they thought we were Fridays for Future. We were with Fridays for Future because we kind of organized the march on a Friday on Global, global School Strike Day kind of in conjunction with that. Um, so we let them know that we were not Fridays for Future, but they were still interested in having us come. I think they thought we were way older than we were. Um, but yeah, that's how we got invited. Did you find that you had anything in common with a lot of the other activists? Um, with some of the on-the-ground activists, yeah, I suppose. Uh, I guess we share our view of if everybody does something small in their own community, then it will be global action and not trying to go internationally. And so, yeah, we shared some ideas in common with other on-the-ground activists. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is an effective way to address climate change? Not in the slightest. I think that maybe a few good things will come out of this. We gain some contacts. But if I'm going to choose between uh, living in a tree to stop deforestation and going to a conference to listen to people talk about how we need to take climate action, I'm going to choose living in a tree. <laughs> this is an effective way to stop climate change at all. Uh, and this, is, this was uh, in preparation for COP27? In a way, yeah, a lot of the people there are youth climate negotiators and are organizing the um, Conference of Youth, which is a prelude to the COP. For people who don't know what COP27 is, what what is it? Yeah, COP stands for Conference of Parties. It is the big UN climate change convention where some old guys sit in a room and talk about stuff to do and promise people that they're going to do things and then never do anything. <laughs> I don't really think very much of the event. Uh huh. So that's kind of disillusioning, isn't it? That this conference was to to prepare people for that. It wasn't entirely to prepare people for that. I don't think it was disillusioning. But what was interesting was there were some people, some panelists, who kind of openly talked about the bad sides of the UN and the bad sides of COP and how indigenous voices are and um, non-Western voices are still kind of being shot down. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting mm -hmm. to see some people just openly, openly criticizing um, COP27 and the UN in general. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us about the more interesting people you met there? Yeah, um, we met somebody who was the founder of an organization called Polluters Out, and their main goal is to get all the major fossil fuel companies out of climate negotiating rooms and stop them from funding anything like this or like COP27. Um, and that was a really interesting angle. To that is pollutersout.org. Check them out online. On their homepage, there is a pretty powerful video called 50 Years of Inaction. For Climate Australia was really awesome and very much grassroots and on the ground focused. Um, we met the UN ambassador from Vanuatu, which is a small island nation that's going to be underwater probably within 20 years. Yeah. It was pretty sad and, like, scary to think to listen to him and think about that. Do you feel like people listened to you there? We didn't 
didn't really have a chance to speak on the big stage, but yeah, the people I mentioned previously um, definitely listened to us, and there were a couple people who offered to amplify our message and help us out. Mm-hmm. What kind of connections do you, did you make that could pan out in the future? Um, we collected a lot of business cards. Um, <laughs> one thing that was interesting, we met uh, some people who are basically the leaders of Earth Guardians, uh-huh. which is a, an organization focused on especially climate justice and and racial justice at the same time. And we... And they offered to have us come as a crew of them, and we're going to apply to become an Earth Guardians crew. Uh, this basically means that we can retain our label and the Mendocino County Youth for Climate, and retain our um, status as a program of Overstand, but we can also get grants and get connected to the larger network of Earth Guardians. So that's something that definitely um, should pan out and be an awesome opportunity for us in the future. Uh, we also learned about UNGO, which is a UN program. It's the official youth constituency of the UNFCCC, which is like kind of a climate connections a UN organization. And Sarah and I are probably both going to join that as individuals to get more information about the COIs and the COP. Uh huh. What are COIs? Yeah, COI is the Conference of Youth. That I mentioned previously, it's kind of a prelude to the COP and can be a pathway to getting into the COP for certain people. Um, there are smaller ones across the globe to prepare for COP, and then there's one, there's always one before the COP in the same city that mm-hmm. the COP is. Um, so we're going to try to get to at least the North America one. Mm-hmm. It's going to be in either Washington, D.C., or New York, um, and it's going to be in September before the COP. Mm-hmm. Were there any action items that were put forward that people leaving the conference could do? No. None? None. No, just no. Wow. Was there a sense of urgency? In certain areas there was, but also what was kind of freaky and disillusioning to me was there was this big presentation about a youth negotiators program and how people can... um, become negotiators in the COP for their countries, and we went to the people who were presenting it, and we asked if people under 18 could do it, and they said, no, you have to be an adult. And um, then they said, don't worry, you have plenty of time. It's until you're 35. And I'm like, we don't have plenty of time. Yeah. By the time I'm 35, what's happened so far will be completely irreversible, and we'll be in a bad place unless we do something now. Yeah. And you would think that these people would be, you know, sending us off, sending you off with lots to do and lots of people to contact. To a lot of people at this conference, it was just, and I can say with certainty, certainty, that was, it's just another mark on their college application. And their, um, Resume. Um, There were a lot of Harvard students. Probably 50% of the people there were Harvard students. And you could tell they were just here, there to be there and not wanting to really take any concrete action. Yeah. Uh, How would you do it differently? I would 
give people connections to politicians, give people concrete structure. Obviously, a lot of people going to the event, a lot of people organizing the event had a lot of connections within the UN system. So I would have given people like ways to make an impact in the UN system because may, most of the people organizing it seemed to be working there. Um, some of the panelists and some of the people we met said join this program, but I don't think that's really a concrete action. Mm-hmm. Last month, you and Sarah and a few of us and I went to Sacramento and we um, went from office to office and talked to a lot of state senators and it felt very inspiring and it felt like certain of them really listened to us. And um, do you have any plans to, to follow up on that? Yeah, um, Sarah is uh, really needs to catch up on the school she missed for EarthX22 and 2022 and from that so i don't think we have any plans to follow up on that in the immediate future though i really want to follow up on that and meet more politicians and try to get concrete climate action um in the on the more local level yeah definitely what are your plans now here do you have anything like what um what does mendocino county youth for climate have coming up yeah um we are kind of in a cool down right now, I feel like. Um, but I'm going to attend the JAG meeting. We're Logging is scheduled to begin May 3rd in JDSF, and so we're really focused on that campaign right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any specific events or anything, but we're going to try our hardest to stop the logging and in any way we can. Yeah, yeah. There is talk of a possible attempt at a compromise in JDSF. And different people, we don't know what that's going to mean. Different people are saying that maybe they're going to try to take out all the big trees and not cut them out of the, take them, sorry, let me rephrase that. They're going to not cut any of the big trees in Casper 500 in exchange for people not protesting and then hopefully a change in the future. What would you think of that? Um, I think what the JAG and what CAL FIRE's, um, perception of the situation is right now is that all we care about is Casper 500 and I can say um, from an insider's perspective that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the coalition is very focused on soda gold right now. Um, it is a more dangerous also THP. Um, we don't just want Casper 500 to be stopped. We don't really want a compromise. We don't want logging and i'm not speaking for the entire coalition and i'm not necessarily speaking for the mendocino county youth for climate but i can say that we are probably more focused on soda gulch right now mm-hmm. um than casper 500 as a whole mm-hmm. over the course of this conference i'm sure that a lot of different things went through your head that um if you were thinking that this is not an effective way to change you know did you develop any long-term plans it made me realize that all this international stuff is happening and nothing's really, no infrastructure is being implemented. We're not really doing anything. And something I kind of realized along the way is that if we can't stop logging in the most, probably the most liberal state in the U.S., um, the most climate 
focused state in the U.S. in a demonstration forest that is meant to um, demonstrate sustainable logging practices, then we're not going to have a very good chance at stopping fossil fuel use in China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, they have their own reasons to stop it, separate of us. And, you know, there's one of the things that we got criticized for at the last Jag Walk was saying, you know, you guys are NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And I think that your point of if we can't stop it in our backyard, how can we stop it elsewhere? So we've got to focus on our backyard. And Exactly. We've, got, we've all got to focus on our area and our area of expertise places that we can easily take action and if we all do that if we all focus on a certain area then it becomes a global movement and i think that's more effective than trying to do stuff at the international level yeah yeah well thanks for for talking with us and thanks for contributing to the show yeah thank you Got a message from God. She says, when you're full and you made a good killing, just lie down like the light. Your soul, rest your soul, rest your soul. Don't go looking to seal your face. That was folk goddess Diane Patterson with Satchel of Songs. Diane Patterson will be on Pride Nation 101 on Friday, May 6th, which will be available on kzoax.org jukebox and also on disquietmedia.blue. Let's go to Sarah Constance Rose with her report from the EarthX Climate Summit. Sarah, testing, testing. Hello. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you? Doing really well. How did you feel when you were first invited to apply to EarthX? Um... I was surprised. <laughs> it um, It's just so much bigger than any of the other stuff that I had been doing, um, that the MCUIC had been doing over the last, gosh, six months since we've been founded. That seems crazy. Um, it was, uh, yeah, very surprising, new, exciting avenue. Oh, once you got there? What did you see that opened your eyes? Um, it was, it was, um, it was really interesting to see how different our type of youth activism is from um, most other people's that go to things like that. Most of the people there were um, like mid to late 20s and were much more involved in 
the politics, United Nations policy change side of things than the type of uh, direct action that we do in our movement. And that, yeah, that was probably the most eye-opening part of it. You mentioned also that right when you got there, somebody who you thought was probably from the petroleum industry was trying to buy you off. Maybe not. Tell us about that. Oh, that's probably the dramatic way of putting it. Um, there were definitely the whole conference. Um, yeah, is it is not. Is, how do I put this? The conference itself um, is definitely funded by people that are not only environmentally focused. I can't say for certain, but I heard some rumors that um, different big oil companies were uh, financially supporting the conference as a whole. We were just the youth section of the conference, but um, I think when you're doing such uh, big work, like a lot of the people there were, and traveling all around and getting into politics that much, um, big oil is, is who has the money to fund you. Yeah. Oh, you've got to burn their oil just to travel around and go to conferences. Exactly. It's um, surprisingly hypocritical going to flying to a conference about environmental activism. Yeah. Did you feel like once you were there that it was the real thing or greenwash or a bit of both? A bit of both. I think there was a wide range of people there. Um, and some of them were more dedicated to doing concrete, um, like really change-making things. And a lot of them were also dedicated to advancing their personal careers and making sure that they did well in the political world. Mm -hmm. So while I think that it was the real thing in terms of um, – the goal, the purpose that it served to just bring people together to talk about the different types of work they were doing, it seemed very politically driven. Yeah. Yeah. What for you were the positive things that came out of the conference? There were some, there was a handful of really amazing other youth, youth activists there. Um, that I made some really good connections with. There are people around the world leading school strikes, um, starting groups to keep fossil fuel companies out of climate negotiations, um, just building worldwide initiatives to connect youth um, and in their whatever environmental work they're doing. And it was a really amazing opportunity to sort of step out of our little Mendo bubble and see what what, um, what kind of environmental work is happening throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this kind of conference is an effective way to combat climate change? Yes and no. I think um, by itself, it's not. But the connections that were made uh, throughout the two days that we were there, I think have some really amazing potential. Um. I think it can't definitely can't be the only thing that you do. If you're just going to conferences and not taking much out of it and not uh, turning it into on the ground impactful change, then there's really no point. But if you go and you make um, 
you like learn things from other people doing their own types of work and you apply it to whatever you're working on and you build these uh, communities worldwide to all sort of help each other and keep our movement strong and pushing ahead because I think if we uh, stay disconnected, we're not going to make any huge global change. Mm -hmm. So where does the Mendocino County Youth for Climate go from here? Um, I'm not sure. We have a lot of different ways we could go. I think, um, I think we follow up and we try to get more involved in the amazingness that is the global youth climate movement. Um, I think that we need to spread awareness about what we're working on here in Jackson, because while it may be just a small part in our global fight, I think it's important to acknowledge um, because of what makes it unique that we're fighting um, large uh, government organizations managing public land that is also um, headed by indigenous tribes that are trying to get back their unceded land. Yeah, yeah. Well, the money feels good. If you like it well. That was the Clash's song, Guns of Brixton, redone by Hazy Loper. You're listening to Disquiet on the Western Front. It is a half hour past midnight, maybe a little more. We're going to go to a conversation I had this afternoon with Michelle McMillan and Matt Bostock, two activists from Mama Tree Mendo, now having started their own nonprofit, Overstand.Earth. So as most of you have gathered, today's show is more than just about forest activism. And we're looking at the evolution of ourselves as activists and of our tactics and how our activism can address this critical climate emergency that we're facing. So we're speaking with Michelle McMillan and Matt Bostock. What, how do you feel? What has been successful so far in this movement to save Jackson? That's a really good question. And I think there's probably as many answers as there are people or angles in the movement. Um, what I really think about when I think about the success of this movement is the community that we've built, the new connections. As someone who was born and raised in Mendocino, I tend to assume that I know everybody. Um, and the number of new friends that I've made through this has been really incredible connections, um, not just on the coast, but with uh, Coyote Valley Band of Pomo inland um, for the first time really in my life, seeing that cross connection uh, has been really beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd really say that direct action has worked for uh, the movement tremendously. Um, and, you know, the old saying that direct action gets the goods, it, it really is true. Um, and while we do stand on a platform built by scientists and elders, uh, nothing really can compete with the community rising up and revolting against the status quo. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. But where do you feel like we've fallen short? Um, yeah. yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, one of the ways that I think that we've kind of fallen short is getting the youth involved and keeping them engaged. Um, you know, we have such a diverse uh, group of people 
but it does tend to lean towards the older side and the you know the traditional activists and a lot of the younger people um, from what I've seen have have really been against for a while now uh, being told what to do and how to do it and what they should believe in and um, you know if you don't follow everything exactly then you know you're a bad person um the younger generations have have been running away from that for a while mm-hmm. and uh yeah so I, I think that that's something that we're we're kind of falling short on but we're working really hard to remedy yeah i myself i'm 54 and i feel at heart like a youth and i remember as a young activist and a a punk rocker one of the main songs that we used to listen to was what will the revolution change? And we kept hearing about what we needed to be doing. And we didn't think that it, we didn't think that it was accomplishing much, but it does seem like we have stalled the logging in Jackson for a year now, more than a year or stalled a lot of it. And a lot of that has been the direct activism. And so it's been pretty amazing. But we also, we were just talking before this about how with logging stalled, there seems to be even more spray painting going on, more flagging of roads, more timber harvest plan development. And, and I, I see this as an area that we've fallen short, but do you see any way we can, that direct activism can address this? <clears throat> Um, I mean, without a lot more numbers, a lot more people on the ground, um, I'm not really sure that we can. Everybody seems to be focusing a lot on keeping trees standing and there seems to be very little energy left to, you know, keep the spray paint off of the trees. But it is really sad that, you know, um, the logging side of this, everybody's getting paid. You know, they're extracting value out of the forest and they're using that value to pay people to, you know, continue the extraction process. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for a volunteer based community movement to keep up with that. I would just counter what you said about the, the lack of energy to um, combat the spray painting and all that going on, you know, well, well, the second part of what you said is definitely rings true with, um, there's this tension between a very, very paid workforce and people doing this on odd hours before school, after work, Um, you know where they're going to be falling trees. It's, it's fairly a simple thing to figure out which logging gates to get to, which roads, which campsites. We don't necessarily know where they're going to be marking, where they're going to be road building because they can mark THPs um, that are so far from the public view as so far ahead in the future. And so that would take this kind of crazy forward strategic thinking. We don't know what days they're going to be doing it. We don't know their schedule. Um, so that would be, yeah, it would, it would just take a whole another level of maneuvering. Mm-hmm. I was thinking also that about the larger situation and the larger situation could mean a lot of things, but in this question, it's, it's the state awareness, the Mm-hmm. awareness of the California public of what's going on here in Mendocino County and the, the proverbial Redwood Curtain. Do you feel like what has happened in the last 14 months or in, in the case of the trail stewards, the last two years has changed? Yeah. So really quickly, I want to touch, you just said the state consciousness and then you said the public 
consciousness. And I want to highlight how different those two things are. Yeah. And part of what has been so um, significant about this movement and yet what is so universally recognizable across these types of movement is that, you know, we've, we've been on the front of the LA Times. We've been on the front of the Press Democrat. We have, we're building social media followings. We're very much on a public level, on a person-to-person level, um, gaining traction and spreading a narrative and shining light to truth. And yet at the state level, Cal Fire is still very much able to perpetuate their same lines. And the politicians, those in power, the Board of Forestry still are like, okay, great, that sounds good. Thank you so much. No further questions. Mm-hmm. And just the, the gap between the state and the public is... Yeah, it's a pretty comical gap, too. Um, there seems to be a really awkward lag time uh, before the state finally agrees with the public and not only agrees, but also champions what the public says and adopts it as their own. And we can see that from the movement um, in the early 2000s where Vince Taylor uh, really pioneered um, changing the management plan then and had to take Cal Fire to court and fight them over it. And now today, they're bragging about all of the stuff that they do that came from that movement. They're bragging about how, um, you know, some of their management practices are better than uh, some of the private timber operations. And all of those are changes that were caused by the community rising up and revolting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also a matter of interpretation, whether they're actually are better or not. And there are, I, I do have friends who are foresters and hard to believe. And a number of them, are pretty down on what they're seeing in Jackson and don't, you know, one of them is a lime forester and he has said that there's, they're not cutting big trees like this and Mm. they're, you know, Matt and I have both seen and been in the presence of six to seven foot diameter trees that were recently cut. And that's not, in some, in some cases it's because those trees weren't there anymore on that private property. But the only reason why they're here is because of Vince Taylor and mm-hmm. the the movement 20 years ago that shut them down for a while. Um, so how do you, as you are in your mid-20s, and as we heard a little bit ago in the show that the UN considers youth as people under 35, how do you feel like your perspective and your aims or your methods are different than the older generation of activists that we're working with? Ooh, yeah. I think the aim is more or less the same in the most simple terms. We, we all want these forests to remain standing and we all think the larger public good is better served um, by looking at restoration or indigenous land management rather than commercial timber harvest on our public lands. Mm-hmm. How that actually works out is very different. Um, and what is interesting is for a lot of these people were doing this, or the older generation of activists were doing this work when they were our age. Um, and so they have their own notions of who we are and how we are. I think the you know, the, the world is always changing. It sounds kind of reductive to say, but we're now very much staring down the reality of the climate crisis. Like it, it's here and we see how bad it is and how bad it's going to get. And so while they might be fighting for their morals, their beliefs, their children, their grandchildren, 
um, we're fighting for ourselves. And, you know, I often think as a young woman, like there's some reality of wanting to make sure the planet is salvageable before considering like starting a family. Um, so yeah, the stakes feel a little different. As an activist, I am curious about how social media affects you in a positive or negative way. And I'm um, sorry, Matt, you, you can, you can answer this too, but there's all this research on how social media is so detrimental to the mental health of young women and people in general, but young women are, are particularly affected. And uh, it seems like a big part of our movement is the social media aspect. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we, we were having fun thinking about this beforehand and looking at the way social media has run throughout this campaign. I haven't yet thought about it in terms of mental health, I guess. Although I will say, I almost feel like this has been a reclamation. Um, I'm not one to toot my own horn, so I'm not very active on social media. But being able to be active about a cause, um, you know, like young women usually don't like being photographed as much, aren't comfortable with the sound of our own voices to the same degree. And but it's very hard to have those same concerns when your picture is being taken at four o'clock in the morning in front of a gate <laughs> or you're giving a last minute radio interview. So in a way that has been incredibly empowering and at least for myself has allowed me to kind of separate out the more self-conscious thoughts from the work at hand, uh, which I think is a, a good experience for anyone Um I wish that I could go back and give this to my high school self. Like, it's fine. You don't need to look at yourself in the mirror. Just go find a gate to blockade. Yeah. <laughs> and put on some diapers. Right. <clears throat> well, I couldn't really speak on it as far as the female perspective, since I am not um, a woman. But um, as far as the movement goes, you know, I've, I've never really been very active on social media. However, I really see social media as being a very important tool um, to the point of if you want to be a successful movement, you, you need to start using these modern tools. You need to use Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and all of these platforms um, and be active on there. And um, yeah, it's, it's really tough, but you know, we just have to learn it and get on board. And on that note, hold on one second. I'm going to pause it. I got to talk to uh, Buckeye. Okay. So Michelle, you wanted to add to your, to your first answer. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems, you know, I think I've overlooked the big success of the movement, which 14 months ago when I joined this movement and when the tree set went up, there was very little hope that Casper would stay standing even throughout the summer. And so the fact that it's the majority of those trees are still there a year later and the Board of Forestry has announced no new timber sales for the year. And we've moved beyond this incredibly inspirational idea that the trail stewards had for a, a 20,000 acre reserve, was it? To now talking about the whole forest. It was um, 5,000 acres at first. <laughs> it was, all we wanted was the Casper watershed. Well, we wanted more of all we thought that was realistic, but then it turned out that that was the hardest watershed in the whole forest to save. Alfire really missed the bus on that one, but 
Yeah, I, I, so I think that the big success, at least in my eyes, has been, like I said, the community that this has empowered, and then also really our own changing definitions. Like, because a couple humans said, we're putting a platform up in the stream, we're taking a stand, um, now the whole forest and the whole management is on the table, and so much the conversation has become at such a higher level, and uh, it's, yeah, it's incredible to see how we've grown. Oh, it is kind of crazy that we thought just a couple of us were, were talking almost two years ago. We're like, oh, what if we just said, let's save this forest and have a preserve. And people are like, oh, well, that's kind of like a fate accompli that you guys just decide you're going to save the forest and that they're going to have to deal with it. And say, well, if we say it, maybe somebody will have to, to listen. And a lot of people listened. So Matt. Yeah, um, you know, this makes me really want to let all of the uh, government officials out there um, and anybody in the extractive industries know that if the public comes to you and asks for something small and reasonable, you should probably take them up on it or else it might escalate and you're going to be stuck giving back what you should. Yeah, we are not where we were a year ago, let alone five or 10 years ago in terms of the public willingness to accept continued degradation to the home that we need to live in terms of climate change. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. So you two have started something called overstand and it is either very controversial, very strange, or a really forward thinking way of changing the world. And, um, I would like to say, just from my perspective, I see it as using the tools of the, the enemy against the enemy. What can you, what is Overstand and um, why did you start it? Overstand, uh, the most simple definition is that Overstand is a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, its mission is to combat climate change by building new bridges between the enduring needs of on-the-ground activism, art, and the ever-changing opportunities of an increasingly technological world. Overstand was a crazy random media stunt idea uh, <laughs> that evolved <laughs> because we found the right team um, and just made it happen. Um, I mean, it's, it's still very much happening. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, and we started it, like I said, the original idea was a media stunt, but we started it because after, I mean, this was back in October, November, um, so at that point, after nine months of frontline activism, organizing, scrounging for media representation, really, really watching the kind of communal burnout that everyone was going through, we heard this idea and went, okay, this could be an incredible... Oh, that wasn't it. This could be an incredible way to fundraise, to bring in new awareness um, to things that we really desperately need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I really think that for an environmental movement to be successful, um, you know, we really, we really need the movement to be sustainable. And part of that is economic and technology based. Um, you know, there's so many people that are volunteering their time and putting in so much effort. There's attorneys that are looking at timber harvest plans. Um, and so with all of this, uh, some of these people at some point are going to need to be paid or compensated if we want to keep going full steam the way that we have been. 
Um, and so what we're trying to do is actually selling non-fungible tokens uh, and entering into the blockchain world um, in order to engage a wider audience and get more people involved that otherwise wouldn't be. And we really have this vision in the future that everybody can be a direct activist, even if you're in a city somewhere and you don't have time or the, the skill set to come out and climb a tree or block a road or anything like that, you can still contribute to the community and, um, and help save a forest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and blockchain itself was uh, the, the whole NFTs go back to cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency, which really was created by sci-fi novelists many years ago, was somewhat of a direct action on the web that unfortunately was pretty quickly, was so brilliant that it was quickly co-opted and, um, it was supposed to be the answer to fight against central banks and central banks have pretty much adopted it because everything is moving so quickly, but that doesn't mean that we can't try to use it for our own needs. I mean, one of the things that has been troubling me since I was a kid is, is the idea that we need money to be able to change the world or we're going to pretty quickly stop being able to do activism, but there's no clean money out there. And I spent many years you know, doing a farmer's market job and I didn't have a lot of money to be able to donate to anything. And I didn't have a lot of free time and it is exhausting doing this work. And I'm not totally convinced that this is the perfect way to deal with it, but I don't think there is a perfect way. And I do, like the idea of turning the NFT concept on its head and total disclosure that I like it enough and that we all work together that Disquiet Media, which is um, the group of podcasts, radio shows I do, has is affiliating with Overstand and we would like to support each other in this process. And supporting each other, I mean, that's really what it's all about. Like we all of our, our hopeful projects and programs, um, we're really just looking for ways to help provide structure, bring in tax deductible donations, fundraise, media, like all of these things are needs that we recognized in the movement um, that we're just hoping to find new pathways to do, to lighten the load a little collectively. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> talking about the, the financial side of that again, um, you know, it, it is a real problem that when the uh, extractive industries are raking in millions and billions of dollars and they're able to pay employees uh, very well, you know, I, I believe the foresters uh, in uh, JDSF are making, you know, nearly $100,000 a year. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of them, you know, it's not just one or two, there's, you know, three, four or five. Um, and so how do we compete with that? How does the community compete with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of employees running around uh, working against us. Um, yeah, and we're trying to fight back uh, any way that we can. And if that means bringing in financial means and making it work, then that's what we're going to try to do. Writing our, our vision statement has been really interesting because obviously our perfect world would be one in which none of this mattered. There would be, you know, everyone could just at a basic level have food and shelter and 
take care of themselves and ideally be part of a community and all of these things. But um, we we do live in a capitalist reality, and especially here on the Mendocino Coast, it, it's brutal. It's it's hard to afford rent. There's very few places to rent. Um, one of our main industries took a huge plummet last year, and a lot of people are reeling from that. And um, so again, while you know there's something incredibly altruistic about getting up and doing this work for free, um, volunteering is is really privileged. And while it might have been more accessible, say in the nineties, it's definitely not accessible now. Um, and so we're, we're hoping to level that playing field a bit. It's kind of why so many of the people who are doing it are retired and Mm -hmm. people like myself where, you know, the first year that I did the trail stewards, I didn't sleep very much (laughs) because I was trying to juggle a job and this, and I still don't sleep enough, but I, I do want to add that we all are conflicted and you, you can't be a modern human being and not be torn up if you don't, if you see what's going on. And I think a good example is within our coalition, the coalition to save Jackson, there has been an incredible amount of strife about the concept of carbon cap and trade and carbon offsets. And in fact, the last trail stewards radio hour we had a long interview with Gary Graham Hughes, uh, America's policy monitor for Biofuel Watch, and he just basically tore the whole carbon offset market to shreds and was saying how, you know, how bad it is. And yet, we have the largest tribe in California, the Yurok tribe, that we think they're doing a really good job managing their forests, are enthusiastically embracing cap and trade and don't feel like they could have regained their ancestral forests without it. We have um, RIFI, the Redwood Forest Foundation International up in Utah, and they have to have carbon carbon cap and trade, carbon offsets to be able to um, pay back the loans they got to be able to recover this forest, these forests. So it's not a black and white issue. It's really tough. And unfortunately, it's also something where in many cases, the same company that is polluting is receiving the carbon offset because they own forest land. And Board of Forestry members are getting carbon offset money for forest that's burned. But it is what we're stuck with. So we need to twist it, turn it on its head, and hopefully make things better. Yeah. And luckily, you know, we're, we're not the only people in this work. Um, there are lots of people, for example, like you just said, looking into making ca- uh, carbon credits make more sense. Um, we're not the only project looking at ways to do NFTs for a social good by a long shot. We're stepping into a big, beautiful community that we didn't really realize was there when we started this. Um, I mean, we and on forest activism, we have friends to the north who are doing similar work. So um, it really seems like there's a level of awareness right now. And part of that awareness hopefully will continue to be that, you know, you, there are tools that we do need to use while also critically thinking about how to look for better ones. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and uh, also just to just to be clear, um, Overstand is not uh, engaging in carbon credit offset trading or uh, <laughs> any of that uh, stuff. 
but it is a very complex issue. And um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that the system can be worked out uh, and all of the issues with it can be worked on. There are some really neat projects out there uh, that is actually also using blockchain technology um, because of its amazing ability to track and verify and get rid of some of that fraud, those fraudulent issues that is currently in the carbon offset market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt and Michelle, thank you so much for being a part of this. And um, thank you so much for your forward thinking and your um, daringness to put this forward in a dangerous situation. Thank you, Chad. Always good to be in conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us. And don't forget to check us out at overstand.earth. Yes. I want to bring Sarah back on and we'll all talk about this, how we stay sane in these trying times. There is definitely the feeling that youth are under too much pressure to change things and that we are all, all of us older people are looking at the youth climate movement and kind of the undercurrent as we're saying, save us. We have no idea what we're doing. So can you help us out? And I, I want to know, I mean, what we said earlier is, is that the UN considers youth anybody under 35. So that includes everybody in this conversation, but me. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Do you feel like you're being put under too much pressure? Do you feel like you wish we were doing something different? And I would say, let's start off with Michelle because you started it. <laughs> I do have a lot to say on this topic. Yeah. Um, I mean, so to come at this from an indirect angle, being a 26 year old woman is very interesting uh, because you're too young to really be taken seriously in a lot of ways, but too old to be given the just you're a youth, go for it, kid. Um, I do feel, however, that like, I mean, I, I was active environmentally through high school. I, I went to not nearly as cool of a conference as EarthX, but a uh, Global Green Schools Conference. Um, and so I've I've been at this work for a while and I feel now finally like I'm in a position where I can do the real work in a lot of ways. Like I have the tools and the support. And I, part of what has been really inspiring for me working with Sarah is that she also has this real approach to real work. And I feel often where we fall into the trap with youth is holding them up as spokespeople to avoid doing real work. Um, and that that's a real problem. Like, focusing so much on the wise words of the kids, but not letting them do any real work and not doing any real work ourselves or politically. Um, focusing on like individual responsibility versus big systemic change and all of these things. Um, so while I think that youth activists, um, whatever age, absolutely can and should be given the room to speak and express themselves, it becomes a problem when it is just used as a diversionary tactic. Mm -hmm. Sarah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I pulled away from the conference that I hadn't uh, really talked with uh, many people about before was this concept of youth washing that people mm. were bringing up. Huh. 
So a lot of the youth that go to COP to, um, to be there to protest on the streets, to express their frustration, they're given um, like chances to speak as to why they're there, but then they're not ever given any way to like actually engage. Uh, like they want to, people want to hear what they have to say, but they don't actually want them to take the action to make those changes. They, it's sort of, um, I think youth are often like tokenized because we have like a unique voice, but as Michelle was saying, like then the opportunities to actually change the things that we are so passionate about aren't, aren't very accessible. Mm-hmm. A building off of that. So I, I recently got to hear uh, Winona LaDuke and Jamie. Oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher her last name. The, the founder of zero hour um, speak together. And they were both asked a question about what a particular 12 year old in the audience could do to make her world better in the future. And Jamie is a 21-year-old, an incredible woman, oh, 20-year-old, an incredible woman who has spent the last, um, you know, five, six years of her life starting this incredible nonprofit, galvanizing. She was one of the first big youth climate rock stars. And she um, seemed very defeated, very tired. She still was a powerful speaker and had ideas and was doing good work. Um, but she was exhausted from the pressure that the world had put on her and from being youth-washed. And so her answer was, be a kid, take a break, wait until, you know, you actually want to get involved or have something to do. Um, whereas Winona's response was, plant a garden, be part of the community, invest. And you could see their faces as they kind of calibrated each other's answers and came to the through line of, we all need to do what we can do. Um, and real work is satisfying, whereas being tokenized will just lead to burnout. Um, and it's it's so pervasive, whether we're talking about youth or other forms of greenwashing, youthwashing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we in the Coalition to Save Jackson are very guilty of this. And I remember last year that somebody came to me and they go, there's this five-year-old, and I won't mention her name, but you've got to have her as the spokesperson because she's so good. And I'm thinking, you can't have a five-year-old. This is ridiculous that we're putting this pressure on this person. And then when Ravel's letter was published in The Advocate, letter to Mike Powers, the, the Jackson Forest manager, people were emailing me for days saying, this is amazing. This person needs to be your leader. And at that point, Ravel was 11, and there was a ton of pressure to get Ravel into this movement. And it discounts the amount of, of emotional pressure that we all are under because of what's going on right now in the world. And that, you know, an 11 year old has less tools to be able to deal with this. And then, you know, it turned out that Ravel and Sarah are both very capable people that are really able to, um, articulate what they're doing, but still it feels like like we're all these older activists and we being none of the three of you trying to uh, change the world and frustrated because we've been trying for so long and they keep throwing stuff back in our face and they're like, okay, so, all right, Sarah and Ravel and Michelle and Matt are here. Let's have them save the world for us. So 
I will speak for some of us. I'm sorry that the pressure has been put on you. I mean, I, I almost feel like we're, like I said before, we're in that weird age gap where people look right over us and go, great, Sarah and Ravel are here. What are you guys still doing here? You're just getting in the way. Like, we're not old enough to be part of that older cadre that's done this a bunch of times, but we're not young enough to be these youth heroes. Um, and then I, I also want to touch on what you were saying about a, a spokesperson, because I, I feel like that's something that's kind of iterated itself through this movement and through so many others. When we have these beautiful community movements where we can have Sarah and Ravel and Chad and Matt and Michelle and everybody, you know, we are all, at least on this call, good speakers. Um, I think we are a little all biased towards Sarah's speeches, but that's the theater training. Hey, wait a um, minute. <laughs> and my, my point here is that I think we, we fall into the trap of wanting one person's voice on an issue and we lose the community, which is what we really, really need to lean into to get us through this. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, especially in a coalition that's as diverse as ours, because we have like a hundred different viewpoints. So how is someone ever supposed to be able to represent all of them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would like to just ask one question of all of you before we go. And this goes back to my own teenage years when I was very uh, aware of what's going on. And I was really, really distraught by it and pretty emotionally messed up. And I look at the three of you and I definitely feel like this movement's been amazing, but it's also been really difficult. And I, I feel a lot of really positive energy from you. And I wonder, um, what are the tools you use to maintain mental health in the middle of this craziness? And I'd say, let's start with Matt because he hasn't spoken for a little while. I'm sorry, mental health. What, what is mental? Is health? That something that how we do you, are entitled to? How do you keep smiling? Um, <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, I am somewhat of a workaholic, so I tend to, ignore everything and bury myself in work if I'm uh, feeling um, like I have degraded mental health. But um, aside from that, I do try to go on a lot of hikes uh, in the forest or take a canoe out on the river um, or go find some uh, nice parts of the forest that Cal Fire hasn't destroyed yet. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I like to do. Thanks, Matt. Michelle. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so much of human sanity, I think is connection with nature. So we're lucky that our work necessitates being out there. Um, and so even when we're working a lot of the time, it's like at Gemini tree or out, you know, in the forest somewhere out at camp one. Um, so that's good. And then <laughs> this might be maybe awkward, but Working with Sarah honestly gets me through a lot because I get to think Aww. of myself at that age. I get to be like proud of the work that she's doing. I get to feel helpful and useful. Um, and it really helps me think through, you know, past my initial response to something bad that's going on to think really like, okay, how can I workshop this to make it productive or palatable um, and keep a smile on my face and She's also all smiles, so that goes a long way. Um, well, I was going to say a similar thing that, um, you know, often when I'm feeling overwhelmed or just exhausted, reaching out, especially to Michelle, but to a number of people throughout the movement, 
um, that just sort of get where you're coming from more. So if I'm annoyed by something that happened at EarthX, I'll text Ravel and just say, hey, or, you know, something that happened on Saturday or whatever, I'll just text someone else that's there. And like having such a strong community that's all working towards the same thing, uh, you really get people that understand your frustration and exhaustion, and it really helps to be able to talk. Um, and then also, I will say, I agree with the connecting to nature thing, uh, just remembering why we're here and like why we're putting in all this work and getting so exhausted. Um, I think that really helps. And also just taking a break because it is a lot of work. So sometimes I'll just uh, take a break and do some other thing that's completely unrelated to take my mind off of it. Yeah. I Chad, I also just want to shout you out um, because you've been so incredibly supportive. I think you were one of the first people that I met in this and you immediately um, were somehow like <laughs> never patronizing, always empowering, but such a resource. Um, and so thank you for being the through line for, I'm sure, more than just my sanity. Aww. I'll second that one for sure. Thank you. Well, I'd say my, one of the great things that I do to keep sane is to walk as far as I can barefoot in the woods. And uh, even if I tear up my feet, which I don't tear them up as much anymore, that it really makes me, it, it, I feel more grounded and I remember where I am and it's pretty lovely, but the community is really important. And even though we have not been the easiest community, but what community is functional in this world right now? And we're trying to pull it together. I think that what I'm going to do for a little sanity this afternoon is I'm going to go out and plant some beets, eat some, nice. bor eat like some borscht and think about my grandmother. Somebody compared the coalition to a, an extended family the other day. Can't remember who it was now, but they were like, yeah, you know, whatever you guys seem to go through, no matter what the conflict is, somehow everyone's still there at the next meeting doing the work. And I think, you know, having an issue to focus on that is so much bigger, not just than any one of us, but then our community um, really helps set the line there. Hmm. Well, thank you for going to the meetings because I'm not going to go this afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to be planting beets. Enjoy. That sounds like way more fun. Yeah. Well, thank you all. I want to thank you for spending this hour with me on Disquiet on the Western Front. It has been a pleasure producing this show, and I welcome your feedback. Send me an email at cswimmr at gmail.com. You can stream this and all of my shows at www.disquietmedia.blue. I also want to express my gratitude to Ravel, Sarah, Michelle, and Matt for joining me and all the other activists here and worldwide trying to change humankind's collision course with karma. The views and opinions expressed are those of myself and my guests, not necessarily of KZYX management, board, or staff. This has been Disquiet on the Western Front.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Gun.